The Messiah is risen. He is risen indeed. I greet you all in the wonderful name of Jesus. My name is John Atkinson and I'm the director of CMJ South Africa, the church's ministry among the Jewish people. I want to thank Alan so much for the invitation to address you on this Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, the day where we rejoice in the fact that our Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Earlier on in the last century, there was a British philosopher called Bertrand Russell. He was a famous atheist, and he made the statement, when I die, I rot. And of course, he was right. That's what happens to most of us when we die. But that's not all. Most of the human race believes that there's much more, that, that life does not consist just of this life. And so the resurrection makes us think about these issues. So the, what I want to do with you today is I want to think about some of the implications of the resurrection, what Jesus has done for us, and how it should change our outlook, and how it should change the way we live our lives. Human beings have always wanted to prolong their lives longer than is naturally uh, available to us. So think of some of the things that were done in the past. Imagine the lengths that the Egyptians went to when they buried their pharaohs in tombs, along with servants who were alive, by the way, and provisions. Because they believed that there was more to life than just this earthly existence, and that the pharaoh would have responsibility for ensuring that the seasons changed and the Nile flooded which, of course, is what they relied on annually for their crops. Think also of our own country, where we have uh, the lasting dignity plan by a certain insurance company. All these things are trying to extend the significance of our lives in time. The truth is we cannot penetrate the veil of death. Although this has fascinated human beings for centuries, and of course, spiritualists and psychics have exploited the vulnerability of grieving people over the ages to the extent that we even have psychics on reality television, along with the other garbage that appears on those stations. Why do we have these things? Because human beings have a natural longing to know what is beyond our ordinary temporal existence. Well, part of our trust in God is that he himself has told us that we are not to try and make contact with the dead. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 9 to 12 says this, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. You shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering and anyone who practice, practices divination or t tells fortunes or inter interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. 
And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. One of the outstanding features of the Christian faith is that we follow a savior who himself has penetrated the veil of death and who could not be held prisoner to it. He alone knows the way through death because he alone has passed through it and come back on the other side. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says, We do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is why Jesus could make this awesome claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The reason he could make that claim is because he has been through the veil of death. And he lives, unlike all others before him and since him, who've been through the veil of death. No other religious leader, no guru, no celebrity, no one else in history is able to make this claim that Jesus makes. Every idea, statement and belief about what happens after death must be evaluated in the light of experience. Jesus' teachings, therefore, are far superior to anybody else's because he alone has the experience of resurrection. His resurrection is absolutely unique. There are other people in history who have had experiences that are similar to resurrection. And we have some examples in scripture. Think, for instance, of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, verses 7 to 16. The woman at Shunem, 2 Kings 4, verses 8 to 37. The widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. These three women received their sons back to them from the dead. But their sons were raised. They were not resurrected. Think, for instance, of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. Jairus received his daughter back because Jesus raised her from the dead. Lazarus of Bethany in John chapter 11, verses 38 to 43. Jesus raises him from the dead. But they all have one thing in common that Jesus doesn't share with them. And that is, they'll all face death again. Jesus alone is raised to face death no more. So we read, for instance, in Romans 8 verse 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Acts chapter 2 verse 24 says, God raised him, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 to 18 says this, But he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, now I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. 
Jesus alone holds the keys of death because he alone has passed through it and been raised to life everlasting. I once asked a congregation that I was preaching to, to consider this. You committed your life to the Lord. Have you committed your death to him? Because, because he is raised from the dead, you need to commit your death to him as well. How wonderful to know that we die in the arms of Jesus. So what does the resurrection of Jesus achieve for us? First of all, it vindicates the Messiah's righteousness. Apart from the authority of Jesus, the risen one, why is the resurrection so important to the Christian faith? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 16 to 19 and he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If your faith is just about the here and now, if it's limited to this earthly life, then you are of all people most to be pitied because you missed the most important aspect of Jesus' achievement for you on the cross. If the Messiah had not been raised from the dead, how would we know that God had accepted his sacrifice on our behalf? We would have been left unsure and Jesus would have faded into history along with many other martyrs who died for what they believed. It is proclaimed louder than words that Jesus is the only savior of the world because of his resurrection. And we know that our destiny is linked to his. And that's why we have eternal life. So the first thing that the resurrection teaches us is that it vindicates the Messiah's righteousness. He was worthy to die on our behalf. Secondly, it makes a way through death for us. If you haven't got it from what I've said already, let me repeat it. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, it says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When Jesus died on the cross, he died with your sin and my sin, with your identity and my identity. When he was laid in the tomb, he was laid in death with your identity and my identity. When he rose again on the third day, he rose with you and me in mind. This is why the writer to the Colossians calls Jesus our life. When you look at the cross and you see Christ hanging there, you should stop for a moment and see yourself hanging there. Because he died with your identity. He died carrying your sin. When you look at the crucified figure, recognize that the wounded and bloodied body is your body and it's you. 
It's your name that is being carried. This is important for us because that helps us to understand how the Father sees it. You see, when God looks at Yeshua, Jesus, on the cross, he sees you and all those that have put their trust in what Jesus did for them. Romans 8, sorry, Romans 6, verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul makes this amazing statement. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It's a good discipline to read that verse and put your own name in there. John has been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer John who lives, but Christ who lives in John. And the life which John now lives in the flesh, John lives by faith in the Son of God, who loved John and gave himself up for John. Now you put your name in that place, because that's what that verse means. I think many Christians struggle to accept the depth of God's work on the cross for them, that he had you in mind. Isn't that wonderful? What a reason to celebrate. God is so keen for us to grasp this truth that the initiation into the Christian faith, baptism, is an enactment of death, burial, and resurrection. That's how we enter. We become part of the family by identifying with Jesus who identified with us. At this point, allow me to ask you some very important questions. First of all, do you know these truths experientially in your own life? Do you know what it is to die this death and to live this new life? I'm sure that there are many people in your congregation who can help you if you do not have a personal knowledge of this wonderful truth that you can live by. Well, having thought about what the resurrection has accomplished for us, I now want to move on to actually looking at what the resurrection means. What did the Bible writers mean when they talked about resurrection? Some people say, oh, well, you know, Jesus was resurrected in the hearts of his disciples. He didn't really wasn't really raised from the dead. It was just in his disciples' imagination. I'm afraid that's not what the Bible says. Some people say, well, the resurrection is that the teachings of Jesus go on. No, that's not what the Bible says either. Let's look and see what the Bible, both the Hebrew Scriptures, otherwise known as the Old Testament, and the New Testament say about this resurrection, that it is the bodily resurrection that is being talked about. That's why it's so important that the tomb is empty. 
We get the word resurrection from the Hebrew, tachayet ha-metim, meaning bodily resurrection of the dead, which is one of the fundamental beliefs of the Jewish faith. The rabbi Maimonides of the 12th century listed 13 principles or fundamentals of belief in Judaism. And the last one is mentioned in the morning prayer service in the synagogue. It goes like this. It says, I believe with perfect faith that there will be a resurrection of the dead at the time when it pleases the Creator. Blessed be His name and exalted be the remembrance of Him forever and ever. Now you could pray that prayer as well. Resurrection is not a Christian invention. It wasn't invented by Jesus' disciples. Resurrection was very much part of the faith of which they were part. We should not be surprised because we can see evidence of this in the Hebrew Scriptures. Let's look at one or two examples. Ezekiel chapter 37, I don't have time to read the whole chapter to you, but it's the valley of the dry bones. And what we have here is a vision of dead bodies being brought together again, both bone and flesh, in some miraculous way, to form a new nation. Now, of course, this foreshadowed what God was going to do with the people of Israel. But it's true for all people who put their trust in the resurrection of Jesus. Then there's Isaiah 26 verse 19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise, says Isaiah. Clearly he's talking about physical resurrection, not some spiritual concept or some abstract idea, but physical resurrection. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust will awake. And then when we move from the Hebrew Scriptures to the intertestamental period, that's the time between the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, we have the book of Maccabees. Now, the book of Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha, and uh, we don't take it as, as inspired uh, like Scripture, but it is very useful to give us the historical context into which Jesus ministers a century or two later. In 2 Maccabees, chapter 7, verse 14, we read this. When he was near death, he said, It is my choice to die at the hands of men with the God-given hope of being restored to life by him. But for you there will be no re resurrection to life. So here is a martyr dying with the hope of resurrection. That is why he's able to lay down his life. Because it's not the end of the story. It's the end of the first part. Jewish views on life after death, of course, uh, varied, uh, both at the time of Jesus and to this day. The Sadducees, uh, the ruling elite based mostly in Jerusalem, believed that our present life, this temporal life, was the sum total of everything. There was no afterlife. And you'll know that both Jesus and Paul take them on about this. Many believed in a continued existence of a kind of disembodied bliss. So the Alexandrian Jewish philosopher, philosopher Philo uh, blended Plato's philosophy and uh, Jewish tradition 
And he was among those who took this view, that it was a kind of, you know, eternal sleep of bliss after death. The Pharisees, however, believed in bodily resurrection. Now, Jesus is critical of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are critical of the Pharisees. Every one of the criticisms that Jesus makes of the Pharisees you can find in their own writings in the Talmud. Why is it that Jesus keeps going back to the Pharisees over and over again? Hardly ever speaks to the Sadducees, never speaks to the Essenes, doesn't speak to the Zealots. The other parties of Judaism are pretty well ignored, but he keeps going back to the Pharisees. I believe it's because he saw in the Pharisees a potential, a possibility, because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And they believed in the authority of Scripture. Two very important aspects that we would recognize for Christians. In the first century Jewish world of Jesus, resurrection was not a loose way of talking about life after death. It was about God remaking, re-embodying human beings to a new sort of life, to live in a new world that God was going to make. In his book, Resurrection of Jesus, a Jewish perspective, the Jewish New Testament scholar Dr. Pincus Lapid says the following. When this frightened band of apostles suddenly could be changed overnight into a confident missionary society, then no vision or hallucination is sufficient to explain such a revolutionary transformation. Pincus Lapid is right. Though he's not a Messianic Jew, though he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he believes that Jesus was raised from the dead because he says it's the only way that we can explain how this frightened little band of, of followers of Jesus were transformed into people who turned the world upside down. Remarkably, more and more people are realizing that Pincus Lapid's words are true. What did Jesus teach about his resurrection? I've mentioned what the Jewish view was. What did Jesus teach? Well, for Jesus, the resurrection was about a new heaven and a new earth. Not just going to heaven, but being part of a redeemed community. A new nation, a new creation, a new world, a new earth. The Bible talks primarily of a new heaven and a new earth, of the re-embodiment in that new heaven and new earth. Not about going to heaven. I always like to suggest that that's the gospel according to Hallmark. You know, the card makers. Uh, there are a whole lot of ideas that the card makers have put together, like there were three wise men. Um, or, or uh, uh, you know, Jesus was, was born in a stable. These things are, are not biblical. They're, uh, they're traditional. And, of course, the, the card makers tend not to be theologians, so they pick up on uh, spurious ideas about the biblical text. We don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. This doesn't mean to give us a little taste of heaven down here on earth. 
since we hope to live one day in heaven, walking on the streets of gold, etc., etc., rather it means praying the present life of heaven down onto this earth. God wants holiness and peace to live here. Have you noticed in the book of Revelation, the church comes down to earth, to a shining new Jerusalem. It is a downward movement, not an upward movement. So you can check it out, Revelation 3 verse 12 or 21 verse 2, you'll see that what I'm saying is true. In every one of the Gospels, Jesus speaks of his resurrection before the event, because for him it's a very important part of his ministry. So in Matthew 20 verse 18, it says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day he will be raised up. In Mark 8 verse 31 to 32. It says, And he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I'm not surprised. What Jesus had in mind was certainly not what his disciples had in mind at that stage. Luke 9 verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and killed and then raised up on the third day. John chapter 2 verse 18 to 22. The Jewish leaders then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Judeans then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. What scripture did they believe? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So they must have taken those verses that I shared with you earlier from the Hebrew Scriptures, brought them to mind and said, that's it. That's it. Of course, the first century Christians made this shocking claim about Jesus. It would have been so much easier to evangelize the world without claiming resurrection. But that's not what the Christians did. For Jews, the surprising thing about the message of the resurrection was not the resurrection itself. It was that there was only one of them. You see, in the Jewish mind, resurrection was a communal event. Ezekiel chapter 37 is speaking about many dry bones that become a multitude of people. Resurrection was seen as a community event. Now, you and I who come from a Western background, we, we have no difficulty thinking about uh, individuals. We are, are deeply fascinated with ourselves and uh, with, the, with uh, realizing our own potential. But in, in, the, in the biblical mind, it's the community that is the primary focus of God's activity. And so for Jews, the idea that only one person would be raised from the dead was a very strange idea indeed. 
it may have contributed as well to the doubt that the disciples initially had when they saw Jesus. And in Thomas saying, you know, unless I see him and put my finger in the hole in his hand and my hand in his side, I, I won't believe. Paul describes Jesus' re resurrection in community terms as well. We shouldn't be surprised. He's a Jewish rabbi. What would you expect? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So in Paul's mind, he realizes that the communal aspect of resurrection needs to be addressed. And so he's saying Jesus is the first fruits. He is the, the first offering of the harvest. But there will come a time when the whole harvest is brought in. And that answers the question. So what does the resurrection mean for us today? And I want to conclude with uh, just a few points on this. What does it mean for us? Well, first of all, it speaks to us of a new hope for the future. At this time during uh, lockdown, when uh, we are, all have a sense that the world is never going to quite the same again after this lockdown, these words are very important to us. What does the future hold? 1 Timothy 6 verses 17 to 19 says this, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We know, because of the resurrection, that the way we live our lives on this earth is not the sum total, but it's the preparation for eternity. And so generosity and caring for others and being rich in good deeds is the sign that we're living the resurrection life. Secondly, not only does it give hope for the future, but it gives meaning to the present. To know these benefits in your life, you must put your trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Then you can share in the benefits of his resurrection. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, Calvechomer in Hebrew, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? How wonderful. What we do in this life has meaning because we have been saved. And the resurrection of Jesus is our assurance. Romans 6 verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So new meaning for the present. Hope for the future. The third point is respect for God's creation. Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. You know, God is not a throwaway God. This world that he has made, he is going to make new. He's going to heal it and restore it. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 22 to 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waking, waiting eagerly for our adoption as the sons of God, the redemption of our body. We are waiting because we know that there's something coming that is going to restore what has been damaged. We can be part of the answer to the world's problems by starting to recognize that this world does not belong to us. It belongs to the one who created it. And in respect for the one who created it, being part of the solution, not part of the problem. So you see, the resurrection has amazing significance for us. And I want to encourage you, as you celebrate this day and celebrate resurrection life, that these things you hold in your heart and in your mind so that you may be witnesses to the restoring and resurrecting power of the God we serve. May God be with you. Amen.